Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you are enjoying the Bumps and Thumbs podcast. In order to continue to run the podcast and get guests on the show, we need support from people like you. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dash Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, the number three, and click on the support button. Once you are there, you'll have options to select from to make a monthly contribution. Your support will help us get on wrestling stars that require financial compensation. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-N dash Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, the number three, and click on the support button. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support and enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today is a returning guest who is well known throughout the wrestling world as a pro wrestling historian. It's my pleasure to introduce and welcome back Mr. George Shire. George, thanks for taking time out of the schedule. Come on, Bumps and Thumps again. I love being here. You know, uh, starting to think I'm doing this as often as you are. <laughs> I, I, feel I, like, the... I like your... I like your podcast. I appreciate it. I failed to mention in the intro, George also has a podcast called AWA Unleashed, which he's a co-host with Chris Tubbs and Mick Karch. So if you haven't caught it, you need to catch it because it's great. They have all these great episodes where they talk about the AWA, uh, the past, some great uh, Bruiser Crusher, Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan, just to name a few. And I've watched all of them, and they are fantastic. So I highly recommend it. So I just want to get that out before that stuff. You bet. Thank you for that plug. Uh, just everybody, go to uh, yeah. go to YouTube. Go to YouTube. And, uh, or type in AWA Unleashed, and uh, I guess they're all out there. So it is, and it's all all wherever you get your podcast to. They it's it's everywhere. So our subject Thank today you. is the Houston promotion which was a thriving promotion uh, for about what, 40, 50 years, I believe. Yeah, uh, way, way back into the beginning of the 40s, probably even before that. Okay. So I want to talk to you about kind of the beginning of it at first. Uh, from what I've read and understand, uh, the Siegel brothers had it. Uh, if, you want to, if you wouldn't mind talking about how that all got started down in Houston. Well, you know, back in those early days, you get into the end of the 30s, into the 40s, and actually this would have probably been after World War II when things started to uh, really take off. Uh, pro wrestling was always around before the war, World War II, but during that three-year, four-year period of the war, uh, pro wrestling took a hit as the way it was being promoted. And again, we should point out that it was, wasn't as big in the huge auditoriums back then, the big arenas before the war. Yeah. It was uh, a lot of them were in the smaller towns. They were in a lot of times VFWs and, uh, you know, national guard armories, that sort of thing. But the real problem when the war came around is that we had all these uh, wily veterans, I guess you'd call them 
and the war took away a lot of the younger guys and we get after World War II, the older, the older guys had either A, gotten older or weren't able to wrestle anymore. And after the war, things started to blossom in a different way. All these different promotions around the country started uh, flourishing with new, if you want to say management promotions, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned the Siegel brothers and um, primarily it ended up being Morris Siegel, who was the head guy or the man on record as being the promoter. Yeah. And we get into the end of, you know, the late forties, then we go through the fifties and Houston was one of those uh, cities that I guess what I want to say is I want to talk about Texas as a whole for a second. Sure. Go for it. Texas, Texas was unique because not only of its size, the state, the size of the state, but there were always from the late forties on usually four or five, sometimes six thriving promotions within the state, all running independent of one another. Yeah. Now, when I say that, Brian, a lot of times they used or they would interchange some of the wrestlers, but for the most part, they also had their own wrestlers that each one of these little individually individual, uh, if you want to call them a territory within Texas would bring in. Yeah. Houston was one of those. And you had, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the Amarillo territory, which was comprised of Dory Funk, yeah. who was again, the elder and he became the promoter and he ran his territory and around Amarillo and various little cities and in Texas, he would run his promotion. So they'd have a certain night that he would have cards every week. And then you'd go in, you could have Corpus Christi or you could have uh uh, San Angelo, I think was the part of Texas. And they would have a night of the week and they'd have the promotions. Yeah. Houston fell into that. And then, you know, you moved a little farther North and you had uh, Dallas and Fort Worth with which ran together. You go a little bit farther down, you had Lubbock, which mm -hmm. was run by Nick Roberts. And so all of these little promotions would have their own wrestlers sometimes produce their own wrestlers, as in the case of the Funks or Dory Funk. He brought in a lot of talent and trained it. But Houston became one of the real thriving cities. Yeah. And from the end of World War II, all through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and into the 80s, the one thing that has always, I've always marveled at it, they ran a Friday night card every Friday, 52 weeks a year. Oh, wow. And I know on, on one of our podcasts a while back, I had touched on the fact that that was the case. Yeah. But they ran Friday night cards 52 weeks a year, with the exception if Christmas Eve were to fall on a Friday night, which, nope. you know, every six, seven, eight years, that's going to happen right. based on the calendar. Yeah. So they were as regular as they could be Friday night. And, you know, I'm going to say that right up front, that it became so popular 
that if you can see this, Friday night at the Coliseum. Oh yeah. And that's where the matches were usually held. It was a, it was a regular event. Now this is a book that was published back okay. in, I believe it was, I could look inside. I think it was 69 or 70 when I got this book. Oh wow! And it was published by the Houston, I don't know where the date is in it, but it was published by the Houston Wrestling Office. Wow. And if you look through this book, a lot of it was photographs uh, of various wrestlers. As I look here, I see Johnny Valentine, who was the Texas heavyweight champion at the time. I see King Thunderbolt Patterson. He's wearing a crown. And I will tell you, he was wearing a crown before somebody in Memphis was. You know who I'm talking about. I, yeah, I do. Okay. I'm sure our listeners do too. Yep. That'd be Mr. Lawler. Yeah. Um, but Wahoo McDaniel is in here. They got pictures of the fans getting involved. Uh, Tim, Mr. Woods or Mr. Wrestling Woods okay. is in here. And uh, he wrestled in, in Houston without his mask as Mr. Wrestling. Oh, wow. We've got uh, Wahoo McDaniel. I mentioned we've got Boris Malenko. I mean, the book is just a, a Chris Markoff and Bronco Lubitsch who were one of the top teams at the time. Yeah. And this was a book that just showed fans that on Friday nights, you wanted to be at the Coliseum. On the cover, you see Bronco Lubitsch, Chris Markoff, and, and uh, Johnny Valentine's there. And big old two-ton George Harris is on the, <laughs> right over here. He yeah. was their manager. Ah. So I got that book back. In, and I guess when I've looked at the uh, – ebay a couple of times the yeah. actual book is pretty valuable today because i think oh, it's limited i'm sure so, yeah. but that was the, the reason i brought that up was because that became a staple for houston wrestling fans and they had a local tv outlet like most wrestling promotions needed or had to have yeah. to uh survive yeah and you knew that on friday night you could go to the coliseum yeah now what i've read also is uh Paul Bosch, who is probably the most well-known promoter uh, of the Houston promotion, um, was mentored by Morris. Yep. And and then he bought the promotion and the Golf Athletic Club in '66. And then I guess you know what was Paul? I mean, I don't know if you ever knew Paul Bosch of his person, but what? What drew people uh, to come work for him, do you think? Well, it's funny you bring that up. You don't know if I knew him or not. Actually, I did ah, know see? Paul Bosch. Uh, not well. I mean, right. I, I, we weren't, you know, best buddies or anything, but I right. knew Paul Bosch and I had a chance, the opportunity to uh, chat with him a few times. And uh, what drew people to him, Brian, was this would be my perception. Mm -hmm. He was a very easy guy to approach. He, um, he was very open to talking to the fans. I think he was one of those promoters that understood that, you know, we can pretend that the fans don't exist, but if we do that, they're not going to be loyal to us. And so yeah. he was, he was very fan approachable. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, like most promotions, the fans, the promoters did have to distance themselves some from the fans because you wanted to keep that kayfabe thing going. And, right. 
and obviously not get into the stories with, you know, the answers or questions about is it real, is it fake or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Paul was very approachable. Um, I actually met him in 1982. Um, we, I was there for one of the uh, WFIA, Wrestling Fans International Association, fan club conventions. And I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but I will put this into the equation here. Okay. The WFIA during the from the end of 69 or 70 all through the 70s and through the about half of the 80s the wfia was a a fan-based organization that would organize and run an annual fan reunion in a different city wrestling city each year oh okay and what was unique about that was is we knew, you know, obviously there were 25 different territories, give or take, in the, in the United States. Yeah. And you had all these wrestling matches and promotions running their cards every night of the week somewhere. Mm-hmm. So they, the WFIA would work with a local promotion in a city and work with the promoter to have a car, be around their, their city on the nights that they would run a live card obviously and they'd go into that city and then the promotion would provide wrestlers to appear at the fan club reunion headquarters usually or the banquet hall and that sort of thing that was in the hotels where the wfia would have their their reunion Mm -hmm. now it was fan club based in the sense that fans would come from all over the country people that ran fan clubs for wrestlers or they may have a fan club for a territory and the WFIA would give out awards. Oh, wow. To, to the fan club of the year or the, the bulletin of the year, uh, various wow. things like that to acknowledge the fans. And also with the promotion coming in and working with them. Mm-hmm. So you'd go into the city at the reunion time and the, the promotion would provide wrestlers to appear and speak to the fans and mingle amongst the fans. And then you would have a live card to attend. And the WFIA group was always given a special section in the arena mm-hmm. where they would all be together. And, you know, usually it was decent seats too. They, they would block off, a, you know, for the hundred people that were there, whatever, for the reunion yeah, or the convention. And so you, you, the fans were kind of treated like royalty in these various cities. And the very first one, I'm just going to throw this out. And I missed it. Oh. The very first WFIA reunion or convention was actually held in Mankato, Minnesota. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and sponsored, you know, wrestlers provided by the AWA. Yeah. Now, in 1969, I was... Uh, I don't know, 18 years old. And I probably had other things on my mind. And I, at the time, I don't even recall that I even heard about it. Yeah. But it was the first one. And then every year after that, they'd go to a different city. Okay. So saying that in 1982, the uh, 
annual WFIA reunion or convention was held in Houston. See how I brought that back? Yeah, circle back. I know yeah. you always wonder where in the hell is this guy? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you ask me, I'm like Nick Bachman. Well, you know, you ask me what time it is and I end up building a watch for you. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. So anyway, the reunion was in Houston. And of course, that's where I met Paul Bosch for the first time. And here's what was really unique when you said, you know, what made people or people like him or wrestlers even work for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I'm going to tell you, I had the opportunity to go into Paul Bosch's office in downtown oh. Houston. Yeah. Well, there, there were other fans there too. I mean, they, yeah. they even offered us a little bit of a tour, the, F, the WFIA group, a less small tour. But I had a chance to go into Paul's office one-on-one with him and Peter Bolt Burkholz was there as well. And uh, when I walked into his office, I'm thinking if there were a camera there that somebody would have taken a picture, you would have saw my jaw drop to the floor. Yeah. Because in Paul's office, it was ceiling to floor, wall to wall, photos, posters, plaques, awards, you know, awards presented to Paul Bosch and, yeah. and, and posters of his cards and, and everything. And I mean, it was like a, a mini museum. Oh, wow. And I will tell you, that's where the light went on for me. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a little museum like this of my own. So that's where I got the idea to have my wrestling room to be ceiling to floor, wall to wall, posters, yeah. pictures, etc. Yeah. And but it was from Paul Bosch. But we had a chance to talk. And you know, again, it was K Fabira. You have to remember this, mm-hmm. still in 82. And so Paul, I mean, I I will tell you, he wasn't about to open up on business or anything like that. And I was smart enough never to broach that that topic because I was going to get the standard answer, you know. But um, he, he, he was very approachable and a very nice guy. And what I had done from what really was my end to him is I had told him that for the past, and this would have been since 1960, that would have been since about 66 when he was, took over as promoter, I had been receiving the weekly Houston programs oh, wow. from a couple of different people over the years. Yeah every Friday night. So I have, uh, you know, in my files, I have every uh, program for each year. So I have a file folder like this. Now this one's an older one I dragged out from 1957. Oh, wow. But if you look at it, there's 52 weekly programs in here, the four page leaflet programs. Yeah. Okay. And I keep these in my file folders, you know, they, each program is in there. Yeah. Okay. So I had been getting programs from the Houston area on a regular basis at that time wow. from about 1966. And so up until 82, I had, you know, quite a collection, but during that time, I had also went and, and either traded or bought programs from different people so that I could get the complete years. Yeah. So right now, uh, my Houston 
program collection goes back to about 56, 55. Wow. And I have every, every Friday night at the Coliseum. So that's Paul, but Paul, and this was where it was easy for me to talk with him because yeah. he found that to be very interesting that I had all these programs and I always knew what was going on in Houston. Yeah. And on his shelves, he had a, a big bookshelf on one of the corners and he had individual bound volumes year by year of his, um, they called them, well, originally they were the city auditorium programs. Mm-hmm. And then later on, yeah, later on, they just became wrestling program at the top. Yeah. Wow. They were printed that way. But he, um, he had these in volumes. So 52 oh. programs in a hard volume book lined up on his shelves. And so when I brought up the fact that I have all his programs, we had, we had something in common. And like I said, he didn't kayfabe me, but he knew that I knew what happened in Houston probably as well as he did Yeah. without any hesitation. And that's pretty amazing because back then, no internet, no social media, no email. So Right. Well, you... and, and that's, that's where this WFIA convention thing mm-hmm. was always so important and it was so well attended and well received. Yeah. Because, and I've said this to people, you know, we didn't have internet and sources in those days. You know, right. it was the old story, Brian, where I go to my matches in Minneapolis, St. Paul, mm-hmm. and I technically, as an average fan sitting there, I have no idea what happened last night in St. Louis or in Houston or Dallas or Tampa, Florida. I have no idea. And, mm-hmm. and the promoters relied on that. Because yeah. that's the way they got away with all the little things they did that didn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like when Pepper Gomez was injured, but he was really wrestling in California. You know yeah. how it goes. Yeah. So um, that, that Wrestling Fans Association was really our early internet because it brought fans together. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that from those early reunions, I have... Uh, Boy, well over a couple dozen people, fans, mm-hmm. that I have remained friends with to this very day. Oh, that's and great. Also, they would have attended some of those reunions, yeah. and we got to be friends. And then again, we'd trade stuff back and forth. And yeah. So we, you know, we were that group of people that knew what was going on when the promoters didn't think we did. Yeah. And for those of us that were smart enough to just leave it that way mm-hmm. and not push the buttons, yeah. we got more information than we would have gotten if we'd have asked. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Yeah. Perfect sense. So those, those reunions were uh, very beneficial yeah. because um, we'd trade fan club bulletins and get results and really worked out good. But that was my end with Paul Bosch. That's interesting. Um, I also read they never had a title in the Houston promotion. They'd bring in uh, champions from other, you know, AWA, NWA, WWWF, or other regions, and were still very successful. I, I'm just, do you, why do you think 
that was that he never Paul never had a a championship. Well, it's it isn't entirely true that he didn't have recognized championships. Okay, but but Houston, Paul Bosch in particular, and I'm going to say Morris before him, Morris Siegel, they were wise enough to know that they could use titles when it was important to have a title. And then if it didn't fit into any of the storylines, the title could just fade away and, you know, fans would forget or not even remember it happened, you know? Mm -hmm. So they didn't have regular titles, but bear in mind that Houston for both promotions, both promoters was always a member of the national wrestling Alliance. So they did recognize whoever the National Wrestling Alliance champion was, even though it wasn't always. Okay, this is. (laughs) Let me put it to you this way. All right. When the NWA, because we've talked about this in the past, when the NWA was formed in 48, it was formed with the idea this conglomerate of promoters that got together. It was formed with the idea that they would recognize the one champion and the NWA then would have that champion travel to these various towns or cities mm-hmm. once or twice or three, four times a year. Right. And from 1948 through the fifties into the sixties, that worked fairly well. Mm-hmm. And the NWA was recognized, you know, generally speaking, most people would say, well, the legitimate world champion was the NWA champion. And every other territory that had a recognized world champion, Mm -hmm. uh, it was their version and that was it. But yeah, it worked well. So the promoters could contact the NWA and say, I would like to have the champion in for these two or three dates. Yeah. And that system worked so well. But as we got to the, it was around the latter half of the 70s. So now we'd have been about going on close to 30 years of NWA history. Yeah. If you want to look back at history, that's when there started to, uh, I guess I would say, you'd see cracks in the foundation of how the NWA hierarchy was working because now it wasn't as easy because there were more territories and it was harder for each of these individual promoters to get the champion to come into their town. Yeah. At least when they wanted them or as often as they wanted them. And, and you started seeing some fractures in that, that foundation. So, with Houston, yeah, they recognized the NWA champion. I mean, if, if you went to my file cabinet, and I mean, I dragged out these two files that I showed you on Houston. Yeah. You can go through here. I had one earlier before, before I got on the air with you. Um, well, here, I'll show you this one. This goes right. back to, I'll put it up here. Yeah, put it up. This, this goes up to, this is from uh, December 13th of 57. Okay. And the headline is that, Dick Hutton, who was then the world champion, NWA world champion, is defending his title against Bill Melby, who was one of the prominent baby faces of the 
the 50s. So that would have been one of the times when the, the NWA champion was in. Wow. And so they were always a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Now, I guess when we talk about that fracture, and I know this is jumping ahead just a little bit. That's all right. Because these promoters were having less and less success in getting the champion when they wanted him. And it was physically impossible because by the time we got into the 70s, uh, when Jack Briscoe and Harley Race became NWA champs, these guys, Brian, were literally wrestling. And we've touched on this in other podcasts. They were wrestling uh, 380 times a year. And you, you, you stop and you go, well, wait a minute. There's only 365 days in a year. Uh-huh. Well, they were on the road every night of the week. And sometimes they would have a, a, a town where they'd wrestle an afternoon card and then also do an evening card in another town a little farther away that was within the same promotion. Yeah. Or within a driving distance, let's say. Or they yeah. sometimes they would fly. Yeah. And so this is where it got really uh, crazy around 76, 77, 78, when, when Harley Race was the champion. Uh, Harley became one of the most traveled NWA champions of them all. Wow. And Harley, by his own admission, he said, I'm never home. I'm in Japan, I'm down in Singapore, I'm in Australia, I'm in the States, I'm on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, I'm in the Central States, and it's this way, just all over the country, that's what he did. Yeah. And so, you know, it got to the point where, and and I think we've talked about this too in the past, that NWA champions, the general idea was, is that they would be champs for two to three years. That's what they tried to keep their champion at unless there was an unusual circumstance. And by the time that second or third year was coming around, usually the champion himself was in Sam Muchnick's office in St. Louis or on the phone with him saying, I want the title taken off of me. I can't take it anymore. I got to, I got to slow down. I haven't seen my family. My kid graduated and I haven't seen him since he was in kindergarten, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So that's, that's an exaggeration. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get, we, yeah, I'm sure they understand. But uh, most of the time it was burnout. They just needed, not that they were going to quit wrestling or, you know, that sort of thing, but they needed to have a lesser schedule. Mm -hmm. And that's where Harley came. So it was starting to break down a little bit with the NWA because a lot of these promotions were starting to get a little frustrated because they weren't able to get the champion or they'd have the champion promised and it couldn't happen because travel got in the way. And it just, there were a lot of little things. One of the instances that was really historical for Houston was uh, in 1977, I want to say it was May of 77. They had the, they had a a rather unusual situation where they ran a Sunday card and it was a, one of these big super spectaculars that they were going to put together. And the, uh, the main event was going to be uh, Harley race NWA champion defending to, 
uh, number one challenger. You know, they're always the number one challenger when they're going against the champ. Right. Uh, that was Terry Funk that night. And then to make this card big, super spectacular, they also had brought in Bruiser Brody. Okay. And Fritz von Erich from the Dallas Fort Worth promotion. Now, Fritz ran Dallas Fort Worth after mm-hmm. 1966 as well. He bought in, he bought that promotion. But a lot of fans didn't know, or a lot of people didn't know that Fritz and Paul Bosch weren't always on the friendliest of terms. They weren't yeah. enemies, but they had their differences. Right. But they never had any problems with getting wrestlers and exchanging them because Fritz ran cards on uh, Monday and Tuesdays. Okay. Monday night, Fort Worth, Tuesday, Dallas. And then Paul Bosch would run Friday nights. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned earlier in our talk here today, with Texas being the state that it was, a wrestler that goes to Texas could also then have steady work if he wanted, where he could do Monday, Tuesday, Dallas, Fort Worth. He could have Friday for Houston. He could go to Wednesdays and they'd have Corpus Christi. He could get to Lubbock and do uh, Saturday nights or whatever night they ran. Mm-hmm. And they could pretty much do a decent living, assuming they're willing to do a little driving. Right. And a lot of the boys did that back in the day. Yeah. So anyway, this super card for uh, May of 77, Harley Race, Terry Funk. Then they brought in Bruiser Brody and Fritz von Erich. And Bruiser uh, Brody at the time was recognized as Fritz von Erich's uh, he interchanged the names at time. Sometimes it was the United States American champion. Another time it was just the American champion, but mm-hmm. Brody was the champ at the time. So he was in Houston and he was going to defend his title to Fritz that night. So you got two, two really big matches with four superstars. Um, then the other big deal was, is they brought in Bruno San Martino from the East coast. Now this was in between Bruno's, WWF title reigns yeah. because this would have been, this would have been, uh, would have been right before trying to think when he, he had either just lost a superstar or he was, hadn't won it or won it from. Yeah. He would have, he would have lost it to superstar. Okay. But anyway, he, you know, Bruno San Martino, how big of a name can you get there? I mean, yeah. any fan of any merit can go to any newsstand during this time to, time period and during the 60s and 70s and Bruno San Martino is the guy you believe is the greatest wrestler of all time yeah so that was a big big deal and they had him on the card well then they were really they really pulled a coup and Paul Bosch said we've not only got that we've got the AWA world champion Nick Bockwinkel wow going to be on the card now on that night Nick was recognized and wrestled as the AWA champ. However, his title was not on the line. Uh, He was in a match against Jose Lothario. Okay. And Lothario in Texas lore was just one of the most popular wrestlers in any of the cities that we've talked about in Texas. Yeah. A very popular Mexican star. Mm -hmm. So that was a big match. And then they had, um, well, there were some preliminaries, you know, it's not worth going into. I mean, Gino Hernandez, who was coming around as a big star at that time, was on yeah. the card. And Big John Studd 
was on the card. He had okay. been big in the territory in Texas, uh, wrestling for a while. And uh, there was Jimmy Snuka was on the card and he was coming of age. Yeah, coming of age. And then there was another guy named uh, Mohammed Farouk who wrestled against Jimmy Snuka. Wow. And uh, people will remember Mohammed Farouk later on as Cosmo Basiri, the Iron Sheep. Ah, okay. So, well, anyway, here's what happened with the car. See, again, I've taken a long time to get back to where we want to talk. That's all right, George. <laughs> Paul put this together. And Harley was, uh, it was, it was an afternoon show, three o'clock matinee show. And he had Harley signed for the card for the main event. Well, as the card is going on, taking place in progress, Harley Race isn't appearing at the, at the, at the Coliseum, at the arena. <laughs> and, uh, of course, as you get closer to the main event time, things are a little chaotic. And long story short on that one, Race did not appear. He no-showed. Paul, Paul Bosch, by his own admission, said, I had no idea what happened to Harley. I was livid. He, basically, he hadn't called me. We, I had no idea. As far as I'm concerned, he no-showed this car. Yeah. Which would have been very unlike Harley Race. Yeah. I mean, most people would admit that. Because, you know, Harley, he wrestled, he wrestled, he wrestled, he wrestled. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, he wasn't there. So Paul Bosch. You know, this is another one of those times where that old saying at the top of the wrestling program page, program subject to change. Yeah. And then there's that little paragraph that says, you know, when contestants or when wrestlers fail to appear due to reasons unforeseen, whatever, we need to make a change. So Paul Bosch on a last minute decision at main event time went to Nick Bachman. And Nick agreed to wrestle against Terry Funk. And it was advertised and it went off as an American Wrestling Alliance championship match. Reason being, the fans paid to see a world title match. Yeah. So on that night, Nick Bockwinkle was introduced as the AWA world champion, which was by all admission was one of the few times when probably anybody in Houston, just being an average fan, even knew there was another champion out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, to Nick's credit, he wrestled Jose Lothario on the early card and went to a 30 minute draw with him. And again, he was listed, you know, introduced as AWA world champion, but no title at stake. He goes to a 30-minute draw with Lothario because they weren't going to spoil Jose because he was one of their stars. Nick was passing through, so to speak. Right. So he got a draw with the champion, which builds his status a little. Well, of course, when he gets time for the main event, and now Nick is asked to work against Terry Punk, well, they put on another one-hour Broadway. Oh, my gosh. Serious 60-minute draw. Yeah. And... Nick was over big time with the fans. And of mm. course, Paul Bosch couldn't say enough accolades for him. They weren't going to have him beat Terry Funk because the, the logic was is that Terry was still a top challenger. Right. Well, anyway, 
So Nick, and then let me just back the truck up a little bit. Beep, beep, beep. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nick Bachwinkle and Paul Bosch were lifelong friends. Yeah. So Nick was there doing him a favor, not only for this and with the blessings of Vern to come into Texas, because that was outside of AWA territory. Right. So he was doing this favor for Paul. And so was Vern. Paul Bosch and Vern were buddies. So they were friends. And after the fact, Paul Bosch found out what happened to Harley Race. Mm -hmm. Harley, this is a true story. Yeah. Harley showed up at the Coliseum later on in the evening, seven, eight o'clock, whatever it was. Yeah. He showed up there and his, so he showed up and his, to his uh, credit, he said it was his mistake. He thought it was an evening car. Ah. Uh. So he showed up. He didn't know show, but by that time, the done. damage had already been done. Yeah. Well, then just a little while later, there was another little bit of a mishap understanding with Paul and Harley. And that was when uh, Paul Bosch just pulled the, pulled the plug and he was no longer using the NWA champion. And he officially recognized from 77 on he recognized Nick Bachwinkle, who was the champ at the time, as the as the world champion. Oh, and wow. Nick was then defending the title, and Harley was no longer mentioned. Wow. So it tells you how something can break down. Yeah. Wow. And that was a major city for the NWA when I talked about that crack in the foundation. Yeah. Houston, of course, was a big hub for the NWA for, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Or more than that, 25 years. I mean, 77 back to about 48, 49, early 50s. That's 25-year period. Wow. Wow. So there, that's where we're going forward. Uh, they were away from the NWA. I mean, he was still friends. Paul was still friends with Sam Muchnick. And, you know, there wasn't any fracture of the friendships or anything. It's just right. that Paul decided to go his own direction. Now, I can tell you more about Nick Bachwinkle and Paul Bosch, but I'm going to let you get a, something in because maybe you can take me down the road on another ride here. I was just going to ask you about, you know, Houston was so popular and, and Paul Bosch and not having titles. I just, I just found that very, very, very odd. But, I mean, he could bring in talent. I just wonder what the draw was. I mean, how did he get these superstars – into Houston was, I know, probably good money, but, you know, not having a champion, really, as you said, they did periodically, but. Well, they, they did recognize world tag team champions. Right. On and off. Like I said, there was never a cohesiveness between them. Right. If, if, if I, if I get out my title history mm -hmm. uh, of uh, the Houston promotion. Yeah. There's a listing of champions, but there's just no consistency as to, right. you know. I guess what I mean is that there's no, okay, there's no, because it was golf athletic club. There's no golf right. coast, whatever champion. There's no tag team champion of the Houston territory itself. It's 
the NWA world champion or the AWA world champion, or if they brought in a WWF champion. Well, that would have been later on. And that, right. that was in, the, that was in the eighties when they, they went, when they went that route a little bit, you know, one of the things that made it, uh, made Houston special in that regard of not really recognizing a multitude of champions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think you, we could all say that even back in the territory days, there were some territories that had four or five, six champions within their promotion. And it seemed like, you know, every match had a championship defended for some reason. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what made Houston unique in that when they brought in the world champion, hey, baby, this was a big deal. You know, yeah. the, the world champion is coming in and it made, yeah. it made more sense for their, their promoting style to have all these wrestlers on the cards, always allegedly competing to be the number one contender. Yeah. Now with Paul Bosch, most wrestlers, when you talk about paydays, mm. most wrestlers will tell you that there's a handful of promoters that they could always count on to be a good payout man and to pay you what they promised you or said you were going to get. Mm -hmm. Paul Bosch was one of those on that list. He was well-respected. Yeah. Now, Paul himself was a former wrestler before the war, World mm -hmm. War II. If you ever, Paul Bosch was unique because when I talk about my visit to his office, yeah, one of the things that, and I think this was the first time I ever really really noticed this Paul Bosch had the biggest ears you ever saw and they were I'm serious and I'm not making fun of him no, I they, know. Were as, they were as cauliflower as they could be yeah. they were all big and puffy in fact Paul wrote a book I should have brought that out here I've got that in my room too he wrote a book and the book is something the title is uh something about his big ears and there's a big his big cauliflower ear on the cover oh wow <laughs> so he, it was a badge of honor for him yeah but that that was one of the things that uh so paul bosch long story short again we've wasted we've lost that battle that's okay <laughs> he uh he was a good payout guy and when he would bring a wrestler or wrestlers into the territory from another territory they were always excited to work for them if they had the date available yeah. because they knew it was going to, they was going to be taken care of and Paul was going to pay them well. So it yeah. was worth the trip in the, in the seventies, earlier in the seventies. Um, if you look at the Houston programs, mm -hmm. there's many times when Vern would send Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle down and they'd wrestle for Paul Bosch they weren't defending the AWA title or anything, although there, I, I do have some programs where they actually said World Tag Team Championship match, and it was outside of the AWA territory. Yeah. So Ray and Nick did wrestle down there for him. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then there were other times when the Florida promotion would send in wrestlers and Paul would recognize their championship for the two or three week period. Um, the city just worked well with just basically having the world champion yeah i just find it very amazing that 
that that territory is so unique, so it was very successful uh, without a recognized champion for the territory itself. That's what makes it so unique to me is that, okay, most other territories at least had a champion that was recognized in that territory. And then the world champion would come in, as you said, (laughs) and defend the world title against that champion. I just, go ahead. I was just going to say it's unique that Houston was so different and successful at it. And and I totally agree with you. And it's funny because I think many times I've thought about this over the decades, you know, to me, and I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this on one of our get togethers here, but there were times when even back in the kayfabe era, when titles seemed to change a lot of change over a lot. Yeah. You know, this guy's champion for two weeks and this guy's champion for two weeks. And, and I was, I, I think even since I was a little kid, I was always of the belief that the championship should be really special and that the illusion to keep, you know, within the, re, the, the, the realism they portrayed in those days, mm-hmm. that the illusion should be that it's hard to become a champion. And it's even harder to stay the champion. And so if you have long, if you have a champion that can hang on to his title for a long duration, and I'm not talking five or six or 10 years. I mean, that, that gets on the borders of ridiculous, (laughs) but if the champion comes to town and he loses, well, It just, it has to be harder for the challengers to become champion and it has to be harder for the champion to keep the title, to make it real. Yeah. And so when a guy was champion for two or three years, yeah, that meant something. That's why the NWA was special. Yeah. Um, I I know I alluded to a a six, seven, eight year, you know, it's kind of like what Bruno did. Yeah. Bruno, Bruno, but, but again, that territory was successful with that formula. Mm-hmm. That Bruno couldn't lose. Right. Bruno wouldn't lose. And the illusion there for their fan base was that no matter who got into the ring with Bruno, whatever big bad bully, the latest flavor of the month, Bruno was going to take care of. Him. Yeah. And he did. So when Bruno finally lost in January of 71, yeah. that's why that was, that was a, big deal and mm-hmm. you know we've heard the stories how the madison square garden you know the proverbial you could hear a pin drop well yeah the, the fans were totally oh my god they don't believe it and and i know this is way off houston but on that particular night because they were afraid in madison square garden that the fans would riot if they actually raised Koloff's hand and said the new world champion, and they would have, I honestly believe they would have because Bruno can't be beat. So they deliberately never introduced him as champion. The referee made the three count and the referee immediately told Koloff get out of the ring. And they had the police, uh, the two guards take him out back there. And Bruno just laid there. Well, the fans were stunned. There was no noise. So 
that was a special deal. Yeah. But oh, yeah. the Houston thing, the Houston thing worked because when there was a world champion match, mm-hmm. championship match, it was the biggest of deals. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it was can can our number one baby face here or or heel, whatever the case may be. The unique thing about the NWA champion is that they had to do, they could be a baby face in one city and be a heel in the next. It depended on their opponent. Right. Yeah. And that's why the NWA had a good formula as well, too. So, you know, people say, well, Harley race is a baby face. Well, he was in, in some cities when he'd wrestle against their biggest, meanest bad guy. Yeah. And same with Jack Briscoe. I mean, Jack Briscoe was one of the greatest scientific wrestlers, actual and, and a real amateur professional. Yeah. And uh, when he'd go into some towns, he was the bad guy. Yeah. Against whatever baby face he was in with. Yeah. So that was a good formula. And when you look at uh, the AWA, you know, Vern as the champion was the baby face, period. Yeah. And Nick as the champion. He was the he was the heel, period. So the NWA formula was unique. But yeah. Houston did well, I think, because they didn't have a lot of championships. And everyone on their card was always that sense of realism that when I wrestle so-and-so tonight, I've got to win this match to stay in contention. Yeah. And that was the feeling that all these wrestlers were doing. The, and it made it real. Yeah. I think if you look at, we just got done with the Olympics mm-hmm. on, yeah. on TV and in, in China here. Yeah. And you look at these athletes, all the work, all the sweat, all the stress, all the duress that they go through yeah. to get to that ultimate goal or to try to attain that medal, whatever, you know, they all want the gold, but whatever it is, um, that was the illusion for pro wrestling back yeah. in that era Yeah. that, you had you you had to fight tooth and nail to become the top guy. Yeah, the top challenger. Yeah. One last question. Oh my in, God, are we done already? <laughs> <laughs> One last question is: In your opinion, who do you think was the best wrestler out of the Houston territory overall? Uh, you know, you talk about Jose Lothario. Um, but was there anybody in particular in your opinion that just Houston was their hub, their place, they just had that pop there that more than anywhere else? Well, for those listening to this and watching this, you know, Brian and I, we don't, we don't have a script. We Lord knows if we did, Lord knows if we did, I went off of that a long time ago with the way I go on. <laughs> but we don't have a script. So this is a question that I I haven't heard before from you. Um, but you said in my opinion, yep. but I think my opinion could bear out that it's probably fact. Up until about 66, give or take, 1966, up until that time, I would say that the one the one wrestler that popped the territory, whether or not he was champion or not, was Luthez. 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 Luthez was the man that 
whether he was champion or challenger, when he was in Houston, he was he was considered the big deal. And I say up till 66 because <clears throat> that was when, uh, excuse me, that was when uh, around that time when he lost the title, Fez lost the title to Gene Kaniski. Okay. And, you know, Lou was getting up in the years and slowing yeah. down and that sort, of, that sort of thing. So yeah. uh, after 66 in Houston, uh, boy, Houston, because they, they were, they were a, a city that could feed from a lot of territories, bring in wrestlers, I would say, I'd say it's a tie between Johnny okay. Valentine okay. and Wahoo McDaniel. Very interesting. Um, they were, as I, as I think through my mind about the cards, 66 going into the 70s, well, Valentine, his career was ended in the late, in the mid, the mid seventies with yeah. the plane, plane crash. crash. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, from about 66 through up until the, the mid seventies with uh, the plane crash, Johnny was probably their, their top heel. Yeah. That, that could draw the fans in. Yeah. And Wahoo from about 66 on went, or, Towards the end of the 60s, when he started wrestling full time after leaving football, he became the, he was the darling of the yeah. uh, Houston territory. Okay. So, Later. yeah, I, and, and again, that's, that's a subjective question yeah. because, you know, with any of the three I just named, we could, yeah. we could sit down and debate it. Somebody yeah. could have a, but uh, I think Fez, Valentine, and Wahoo were probably the, uh, perennial favorites whether whether lou was working as a heel or not i mean yeah. he was the favorite and johnny typically was a heel mm -hmm. yeah who was, was a baby yeah didn't mean to put you on the spot there no 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 that's <laughs> great and, and i think i think i think uh as i think about my answer i, I i'm yeah, sticking no. to it all right all right well on that note Ladies and Did gentlemen, we answer all your questions. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. They're they're, they're answered. I, I I really appreciate it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, pro wrestling historian, friend of mine. Over, we've never met in person. Like I've said, we're before. gonna we're gonna make but that we're gonna happen. make that happen someday soon. Yeah. And uh, my good friend, uh, Mr. George Shire, thanks again for coming on today. I my really honor, my pleasure, and. Uh, Hope I can do it again. Oh, yeah, we will. Definitely. And I'll folks, see if I can come up with something to talk about. <laughs> I'm sure you can. No problem. <laughs> I folks, know I go around and about sometimes with no. the stories, and, but I think that's what makes it makes exactly. it natural and fun because I think we can learn as things pop into our heads. So that's the reason I do it the way I do. People love it. I get all these comments you. about you in, in a great Thank way. You. So... Folks, again, Mr. George Sire. George, thanks for coming on. Thanks you for listening. And if you're watching, thank you. And please subscribe. And we will talk to you soon. 